This week we continue our series about the journey of Joseph, his up and down life, and the many things that he ran into, including no doubt having to fight bitterness. We're going to talk about bitterness and how to fight bitterness in ourselves. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, July 19th, 2015. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we are continuing our series, The Journey of Joseph, and we'll kind of get a little bit of background. Joseph is a fascinating person in scripture. He's got the longest biography in all of Genesis, 13 chapters in the book of Genesis, and it tells his story. It tells him how he was born and um, how he lives in kind of a legacy of favoritism and how that affects his life. And if you read the story of Joseph, it's fairly fascinating as he starts to um, be his father's favorite. I mean, there's positive things that happen in his life. He is a CEO of a country, essentially, by the time he's 30, which is impressive. God's special favor is on him. He's handsome. He's good-looking. He's smart. Wherever he goes, they put him in a position of leadership. So he's a pretty talented person. On the downside, though, and that's what we talked about last week, you would think that someone has, who has propelled to such great things probably had this awesome, stable family life but his family life was pretty much a mess, and his family life is not ideal at all. And his father, if we went all the way back to Abraham, his great-grandfather, but his grandfather had a favorite son, uh, Esau, remember the one who lifted, drove the, like the 250 diesel lifted, and then his grandmother had a favorite son, Jacob, which turns out to be Joseph's father. And you would think um, Jacob saw the pain this is Joseph's father. You would think that because he saw that pain, wouldn't you like try and avoid those things in your own family? And, and I use the example, if you grow up in a family of alcoholism, you would try to avoid it, right? If you grow up, because you know all the pain and the hurt that goes with betrayal, if you grow up in a family with a legacy of lies, you would say, you know what, I want to avoid this. A family where they waste money, you'd try and avoid that in your own life. A family with physical abuse or uh, mental abuse or uh, verbal abuse. You, you, you see your own parents screaming at each other. You probably say, you know what, when I get married, we're just not going to do that. Or your own dad was especially rough with you when he disciplined. You'd say, you know what, I'm not going to do that to my kids. You would think just because you identify that pain that it wouldn't happen in the next generation, but is that how it works? So often it, these um, bad legacies get handed down. I just gave the example of alcoholism. Uh, 50% chance, if you have one parent who's alcoholic, that you'll be alcoholic. If you have two parents, 75% chance. That's just numbers. And the same thing happens with this legacy of favoritism. Um, Jacob's father, was not, uh, Jacob was not his favorite. He eventually has to leave the house because of issues. He only sees his brother twice for the last 40 years of his life. He never sees his mother, and that was his favorite son. Never sees her again, we don't think, for 40 years. He goes to bury her, but that's it. You'd think he would try and stop to do that, but instead, he gets married, and then gets married again, and then has these two other women in his life, and distinctly, he has a favorite. And we walked through that last week, one where he worked not seven years, 250000 very rough estimates, $250,000 dowry price. He works another seven years for like half a million dollars. That's his favorite wife. And when that favorite wife finally has a baby named Joseph, that's his favorite son. This, um, this influences, and, and um, the thing that we'd want to touch on, I think, is despite Joseph's background, maybe you don't struggle with favoritism with your own kids, and you say, hey, I love all my kids the same. That's good. Um, but I don't know the background you came from, and who knows what kind of function or dysfunction you had in your family? Who knows what kind of legacy or sin that kind of gets handed down to you? 
Joseph is a model for saying, I grew up in a bad situation, but I'm just not going to do that anymore. But this is their story. Um, now, Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. There's 10 of them because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. We said the decisions you make about favoritism affect relationships now and in the future, but they affect relationships right now. And this obviously affects Joseph and his brothers. It does not feel very good not to be someone's favorite. It doesn't feel very good to be Leah, right? When you have the Ferrari wife and you work all this, and then here you are, the other wife that he doesn't care about. And people know it. This affects the relationship. Now imagine, what, what is the main driver, though, that makes these brothers so frustrated? I think jealousy. They're jealous of the special status their dad has. Imagine you have ten brothers. You would be, all be vying for your father's time, and very distinctly, he loves one more than you. I don't think that would be that great. Uh, imagine um, you go into a new job, and you're there for like six, seven, eight, nine years. Some of you can relate to this. And then a new person shows up, and they make that new person uh, with a promotion. How would you feel about that? How would you feel if that new person was your little brother? That seems to be what's happening. So not only has Joseph um, received the favor of his father because he just shows love to him very obviously, but he gives him this ornate robe, which very distinctly says that no matter what it looked like or the length of it, uh, it's very distinctly as saying, like, you are now the supervisor of your brothers. So you have all these older brothers. They're like in their late 20s, many of them. You're 17 years old, and you're the boss. How would you like that if you're one of the brothers? Maybe, and maybe you can relate in a different way, though. Have you ever wanted a promotion, and then it goes to someone else? You ever go to work, and it seems like the boss has their own pet person that gets all the good accounts? They get the easy assignments. You're the one at the restaurant who has to clean the bathroom, and then they, they're the one who has to wrap silverware. You know, you're like, this is not a fair deal here. Has that happened to you where someone, very, they, if you're a waiter or waitress, and they get the good tables somehow? Yeah. Maybe you grew up in a family where it seemed kind of obvious that your mom or dad liked the sibling a little bit more than you. You know that feeling? Maybe they're more proud of the accomplishments that they meet. When families get together, they're always talking about the things they did. Maybe you're in a family where it seems your parents are always buying them stuff and not you. They always give them the benefit of the doubt and not you. And it seems like they're always encouraging your brother or sister, even when they're naughty and when you're not, they're always yelling at you. You ever feel that way? You ever have a coach do that? A boss do that? It doesn't feel very good not to be someone's favorite. Joseph and his brothers are going through this, but Joseph adds fuel to the fire. He has a dream. And this seems to be earlier on, if you're talking about chronology. He has a dream, and when he's told to his brothers, they hate him all the more. He says to them, this is a rule of thumb. If you have a dream like this, you just don't tell your family, okay? Uh, So listen to this dream I had. And they're all going, great. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and they're laughing already because they're like, you don't bind sheaves because you're the boss. Um, We're binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, well, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They hate him all the more because his dream and what they said to him. 
they're getting more and more mad. Now, usually, if your little brother has a dream, I've got a little brother, and he would tell me his dreams when he'd wake up sometime. Most of the time, you laugh, right? If your brother had one about gluten genuflecting, would you laugh at that, or would you be like, whoa? You know, that's kind of funny, unless, as a brother, you believe that God's favor is really on him, and that God might actually fulfill this. This is something that stuck with them. They're getting more and more angry. The scriptures tell us, get rid of all bitterness. The word they use for bitterness is like a poison that is acrid and a poison that destroys the thing that consumes it. Their story continues. He gets another dream, and you heard that, with his, now his father and mother involved in the stars and the sun and moon. Um, I remember this as a Bible story as a kid, and they're all bowing down to him. People are getting angry and angry. Even his own dad is like, Joseph, seriously, quit talking about the dreams. But it moves on. They see him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Now let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. They say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, this is the oldest son. He tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Just a side note on Reuben. Reuben's the hero in the story, right? Reuben is also the hero among bad people. How about that? Um, Reuben's the oldest, and he's the first of his father's sons. And if you're the oldest of your father's son, that means you get the birthright. You get a double portion, and this is part of the exciting. The reason he does not get the double portion is just to give you how messed up their family was. He has a relationship with his father's handmaid who also, so in this family, there's 13 kids total. There's four women who are moms, so it's three stepmoms if you're one of the kids. And Reuben, the oldest, has a relationship with one of the stepmoms. So the dad comes in and says, you know what, you're out. The dad says to the next person, you're out. The next, the next, the next, the next. And when he gave him that robe, the indication by some commentators is that he was saying to Joseph that you are now my firstborn. You're the one who's going to get this inheritance. So now, now just add this up a little bit. Dad obviously loves his mom more than our mom. Okay, you know, that's, that's where it is. But now dad loves him more than us. Dad gives him the supervisor role, not us. Dad is saying he gets the right of the firstborn ahead of 10 other brothers. They throw him into the system here in the wilderness, but they don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said to this to rescue him from, uh, from them and take them back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his, uh, the robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Just for visual, uh, I don't know if you can see this picture very well. This is uh, roughly the uh, cistern that they had. It would just collect water because it was such an arid temperature. The water would come in flash floods kind of, and then they would fill it up. They're roughly about 12 feet deep. Uh, is this a place you'd want to hang out? <laughs> no. So they dump him into this place, and uh, it says in the next verse, they sat down to have a meal. So their brother is now like in a cistern pit. They're sitting down to eat lunch and talking this over when they see the Ishmaelites coming. And we can see, though, that they're not without guilt. Because if you look at Genesis 42, it says this. Uh, Genesis 42, when they're struggling with this and wondering where they sat down, it said, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he was pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come to us. So 20 years later, when they finally meet up their brother, what is on their conscience? 
the fact that they betrayed their brother. And then they sell him to some traffickers who are going by. Resentment. Resentment is one of the, um, the weird things. If you are struggling with jealousy in your own life, if you're struggling with the jealousy your parents, the favoritism they show to something, you're struggling at work with the advantages someone have, if you're struggling with, why do I have this disease and not someone else? The root of bitterness is knocking at your door. And bitterness is one of the weirdest sins in Scripture. I tried to illustrate it with the kids. Um, that's from a Nelson Mandela a quote, who I think quoted St. Augustine, which we talked about this morning, 480 A.D. St. Augustine said, um, trying to get back with someone with resentment is like trying to poison someone uh, by drinking it yourself. They asked this about Nelson Mandela. So if you know the Nelson Mandela story, um, my friend was just at camp and he was talking about anger. And he told the story of Nelson Mandela. So this is apartheid in South Africa. And he was fighting against apartheid. He said all people should be equal. They put him into prison, and not just like normal prison, they put him in hard labor prison. It is literally a former leper colony. And his job was hard labor, which is just crazy. Like he would break rocks. Like my son does that for fun. And he just takes the hammer and smashes our ornamental rocks. But this is what they would have to do. They would just like dig ditches, um, dig rocks. He's in there for 26 years. And when he finally gets out, they, they, they release him when they're going to have the presidency election. So now they're saying, like, all people can vote. And, of course, who do they pick as the president? Nelson Mandela. So the, the fear of all the people at the time was, okay, now he's in power. He's going to get back at everybody who has done and hurt us. He said, though, as I walked out of the door towards the gate that would lead my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. I'm not sure why we hold on to resentments. Every one of us has grudges and resentments on a certain level. And I think some of them are easily justified, right? If you explained your situation to someone of why you're so angry, do you think they would agree with you? I think most of the time they would. If someone physically hurt you and you say, I'm very angry with this person, would people agree? Yeah, this isn't little stuff. Like if someone emotionally hurt you, someone sexually abused you, if you, uh, if you had a teacher who was totally unfair that failed you for no reason, you had you know, any number of reasons. You got a brother who sued you, you got a sister who did this, you got an uncle who did that. There is no doubt that you have things that you can be bitter about. And I'm not sure quite why we like to hold on to them. Is it because we like to have like kind of an even score? It's kind of nice to have in your back pocket on some level. I mean, if, if you did something to me and I forgive it, that means it's gone forever. But what if I just kind of hold it here? In case I accidentally or I do something to you, then we can say, listen, remember when? A friend of mine who's a counselor, pastor, counselor, he was meeting with a couple, and he was trying to get to the bottom of the, I mean, he said severe resentment was going on. The resentment went all the way down to, they both had relationships the day before their wedding with wedding party people. The resentment goes deep. I have no doubt that things have happened to you that you can be resentful for. But when you hold that anger, when you hold that grudge, the only person you hurt is yourself physically. I mean, if you just look at the stats, if you actually care about yourself, you're not going to want to be resentful. Physically, they say it affects you. Some doctors estimate that 90% of like illnesses and diseases come from, I mean, even if you don't even believe in the Bible, and you're saying, okay, is this a good idea to forgive people? Some estimate 90% of the illnesses that you, ulcers, lack of sleep, um, 
high blood pressure, comes from resentment and bitterness and anger. 90%. So even if you don't even believe scripture, you're saying, okay, is this a good idea or not? It makes some sense. Physically, it hurts yourself because you become the very person you don't want to be. If our goal is to be Christ-like in the way that we live and walk, and we wake up thinking of what Jesus has done for him and the forgiveness he's brought us, if our goal is to live in forgiveness and mercy and compassion, and the person we think about most is the person who hurt us, who do you think you become like? I heard that. It was a story in a youth group. That guy, uh, the youth pastor was sitting with a girl, and someone had done something, and they were talking about it. And she said, I will never forget that till the day I die. And he says, that's unfortunate. And she said, why? He says, because in 20 years, you're going to be that person. There's something to not only hurting yourself physically, not only hurting yourself mentally and emotionally and the depression that comes with it, not only becoming the very person you don't want to be, it also affects other relationships. You ever meet someone who's really bitter? Somehow they, it's like a vortex and they try and pull you into this world. I've told you the story of Edna and Eleanor. So I when I was a vicar, that's an intern, so as a vicar and an intern, there was one, um, there's a nursing home where I would go to, and Edna and Eleanor are sisters, so I mean, basically the same stuff has happened to them on, on various levels, so I'd visit um, Eleanor first, because I would stop into Eleanor's room, and I'd be like, Eleanor, it's vicar, <sighs> my body hurts, my legs hurt, my kids never visit, I mean, this went on for like 30 minutes, and I would just listen, and, you know, I'd pull out Philippians, you know, rejoice in all things, and then she's like, oh, I can't even remember anymore because my brain doesn't work. You know, it would go on and on and on and on and on. Then I would go visit Edna, her sister, and I'd be, hey, Edna. She's like, oh, thanks for coming. I'm so glad you're here. And she never talked about her illnesses. Like, she had respirator things. She had all these, they both died within a year of each other. So one would just tell me about their illnesses, about how their family had problems, about how things didn't go their way. And Edna would just be so happy I would be there. And she would say, thank you for sharing God's word with me. Bitterness affects the relationships you're with. But probably the most important thing is if you hold this bitterness, is it starts to affect your relationship with God. Because you're in a relationship, if we're really believing that God is looking out for us in all things and that God cares for us, when we hold resentment, we're saying, God, in this issue, I don't think you really handled this very rightly. God, I don't really think you were looking out for what's best for me. In this issue, God, you say I should forgive and love other people. You know what? That's a great idea, except right now. And I've seen more than one relationship so affected by the past that it changes the way they look at themselves, the way they treat others and the way that they have a relationship with God. So is there any out from bitterness? I think there is. Number one, forgive. There's only two today. There's only two points. Number one is forgive. We're going to fully talk about forgiveness because Joseph is such a prime example. If, if anyone who would have the root of bitterness knocking on his door, as you're sitting on the bottom of this cistern, and he's in prison, you know, later in Egypt, and they're like, yeah, I didn't have a good relationship with my brother. You know, like he stole my spear one time. And he's like, well... I got a story for you. Do your brothers ever sell you to human traffickers? That happened to you? Ever? Do your brothers pretend that you were dead? Did your brothers throw you in a cistern? Did your brothers want to murder you? It, like, he's got the story that everybody and the whole planet would go like, that's a good one. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's really good. You know, he's got the story of bitterness that he could do. And what does he do? Instead of holding on to that bitterness, we're going to see later that he forgives the bitterness. 
And the way that he does that is he recognizes that God is looking over his life. So his brothers come to him after his father died, and they're positive that now he's going to bring retribution. And instead, Joseph says, you intended to harm me. God intended it for my good. So suffice it to say this, you cannot forgive people unless you've been forgiven. And the only way that you can look at someone who's done such hurtful things, and I don't deny that those happen, is to know that we have a God who's looked at all our sins and he knows every single one of them. And we have a God who is willing to go all the way to the cross. We have a God who says, because of your sin, not of how awesome you are, but because of your sin and my mercy, I'm going to wipe those away. That is the only way that that is possible. Number two, I trust in the Lord. I had to do some trust in the Lord as that slide disappeared. Um, trust in the Lord, I think that happens in two ways. Number one is you trust that the Lord is going to take care of things. When you hold on to resentment, your goal is to try and bring retribution to someone. It says in, in the book of Romans, vengeance is the Lord's. And so don't hold on to malice and anger and hate. So if someone has really done something that is really hurtful to you, you have to trust God is going to take care of this. Secondly, um, as you, you have to trust, uh, as you forgive unilaterally, that means the other person might not even ask for forgiveness, but as Christ has forgiven us, that's how we do it. We just say, you know what, I'm going to forgive you. The second way is to trust that God is really working things out for you. It says in Romans, probably the most common quoted passage of all time, besides John 3.16, is God works, out, all, uh, God works for the good of those who love him. We know this. It says it doesn't see, we always see it. So when things happen to you, when you see about the hurt and the pain and the trouble at work or at school or the illnesses that you have or the sicknesses you have, the injuries that you have, the loss of money you have, you have to step back and say, okay, God loves me enough to die. God loves me enough to look after who I am and that there's a reason why this is happening. You've got to forgive and you've got to trust the Lord. It's really easy to say, though, I think, just forgive, right? I think it is. I've seen plenty of relationships where they said, hey, all things are forgiven. Bitterness is not necessarily the act of forgiveness to get rid of that. Bitterness is the feelings that remain. And so the thing that you're going to struggle with is not saying, hey, I forgive you. The thing that you're going to struggle with, and this is the why the Bible talks about this being a poison, is the feelings that you remain that stay inside you. And the only way you can get rid of those is push those onto the Lord's plate and say, God, I trust you're going to take care of the situation. And God, I trust you're taking care of me. Amen. Uh, we pray. Heavenly Father, some awful stuff has happened to us. We've got uh, relationships that are in friction. We've got uh, brothers or sisters or aunts and uncles. We see this, how the root of bitterness has affected our own lives. Uh, maybe we look back at our life about a disease. We look back in our life at favoritism that has been in our own family. We look back and think, uh, we deserve self-pity. We're justified in where we stand. And the world would agree with us, but you call us to get rid of that root of bitterness. Um, you call that, say, this is not busy work. This is for our own health. This is on, for our own wellness. And this is for our own relationships. We can't concentrate on a relationship with people when we're bitter. We can't concentrate on a relationship with you if we're bitter. So take all that bitterness from us. Help us to see the joy of our lives. Help us see the joy of the moment that we have that you've given us and to change our lives forever. Amen.